is uh, the perfect song to choose before our passage today, as you'll see when we read it. Um, page number 1,511 in the Pew Bibles. And we have a bit of a long passage today, and uh, also I think as we read it, you'll see why uh, we are handling it all in one sermon. It's uh, a little bit of a downer. And, uh, and I think it is one coherent idea that, uh, that Jesus is telling us here. And we're actually going to go back and pick it up in verse 16, just for continuity's sake. A lot of uh, the Bibles uh, are, some of them, you know, split here, a paragraph starting with verse 16. Others start with verse 17. Ours here starts with verse 17, but I want to go back and pick up verse 16 as we go. So... Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Jesus continuing to teach his disciples before he sends them out on his, the mission says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house was, has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might understand your word. This is a hard word about the difficulties that Christians will face in this life. And yet, Father, there's great hope that you are with us and that there is a a reward that is worth it. May we see that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we all know from history, uh, Christians have endured persecution in different forms with different intensities at different times uh, throughout the last 2,000 years. And we're all thankful that Christians are not constantly persecuted. But when it comes, it tends to come unexpectedly. And I believe that every single one of us in this room, we know that intellectually. However, being American citizens has trained us to not expect persecution. We tend to think that's not the way it's supposed to be. So that's why a passage like this is so important for us. Because we especially need to be reminded that it is a definite possibility. Jesus tells us that it will happen. And this passage helps us to prepare to face it if it comes and to think rightly about it if God should decide to bring it into our lives. And so this kind of passage helps us to be prepared so we're not surprised if God calls us to suffer for his name. And so that we won't be tempted to compromise our faith in order to protect something that we believe is precious in this life. In our passage this morning, Jesus is preparing the 12 apostles for the mission that he's sending them out into, but we're going to discover right away that he's also preparing them for their entire lives as Christians doing his work. And not only that, but he's also preparing us for our lives as his followers. And so as he prepares us and them, we learn four things. We learn first the cause of persecution— And then we learn the kinds of persecution. We also learn how to respond. And finally, what is the purpose? So let's jump right in. What's the cause of persecution? Uh, The big question that most of us, I think, have as American Christians is why would anyone want to persecute anyone? Sure, we might disagree about fundamental things in life. However, why can't we just live and let live? How does it get to the point where one group feels compelled to literally persecute another group. And the obvious answer, of course, is because of sin. But Jesus 
tells us in our passage that it happens on my account. Verse 22, he says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. So the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about here comes to believers because of Jesus. I was recently listening to a Christian thought leader who shall go unnamed, uh, but he's somebody who tends to be controversial and confrontational. Um, I would say unnecessarily so. But he said that he knows, he knows when he's saying the right thing because he gets a rise out of people. He interprets their criticism as evidence that he is on point and saying the thing that needs to be said. Okay? So if we happen to be Christians, and if we happen to be dealing with criticism or even persecution, that doesn't mean we're being persecuted on account of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean we're on point saying the thing that needs to be said. It could be that we're just being a jerk. That we're misrepresenting Christ. And so if we're being persecuted or criticized, that ought to be the question that we ask ourselves first. Have I moved outside of how Christ is calling me to interact with this world that is bringing this to my life. This is why Jesus says we must be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. We must boldly share the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we must do that as people who are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. As Peter tells us, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So this is the kind of suffering that Jesus is talking about. When we suffer as Christians on account of Jesus, for taking the message of the kingdom to a lost and hurting world, full of the fruit of the Spirit, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. But let's not suffer for being meddlers. Let's not suffer for being arrogant and mean and condescending. The reason Jesus tells us we will be persecuted on account of him is because we are Christians. So, what kind of persecution can we expect? So Jesus teaches the disciples here, basically, there's two kinds of persecution. There's the kind of persecution that comes from the government and from society outside crashing into our lives. But there's also the kind of persecution that comes from inside our circle, from family, and that's the primary one he references here, but also from friends and from fellow citizens. Persecution comes from society and government on account of Jesus because Christians will not accept any government as a higher authority than God. Which sounds normal to us in America, 
where we have religious freedom. But in most countries throughout the history of the world, no government wants even a small part of their citizenry to believe that there is somebody that they must answer to higher than the government. That would be subversive. That's a threat. And most governments throughout the history of the world have been very insecure. And so anytime Christians would rise up and say, no, actually our allegiance is to King Jesus, that would be a threat to those governments. And so they persecute Christians. Christians also suffer on account of Jesus because they will live alongside family members and friends and fellow citizens who don't think they are sinners, who might not even believe God exists. And just the idea of all that Christians believe will be offensive to them. It will make them angry to hear a story about how they are sinners and need to repent of their sins. You see, apart from the supernatural intervention of God's Spirit, no one wants to believe that they are rotten to the core and they cannot save themselves. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that people will think the story of God becoming a Jewish carpenter and dying on the cross is foolish. Paul tells us that they're, they're going to demand proof with fancy arguments or miracles. Because the whole idea of it will sound ridiculous to them. And at some point, it's hard to keep tolerating Christians who believe a ridiculous story that they can't prove about a carpenter who they say rose from the dead and who think that you're living a life that God does not approve of. Eventually, that becomes intolerable. Even if we're the nicest, non-judgmental Christians in the world, people will eventually not want to put up with our story. They will hate the idea that God has a right to tell them what to do with their sexuality. They will hate the idea that God has a right to tell them what to do with their money by commanding justice for the poor and the foreigner. So in verses 17 through 19, Jesus warns his disciples about what will happen and what, what it will look like to be persecuted by society and government. First, he tells them they're going to be handed over to the Jewish councils and flogged in the synagogues which sounds like part of the mission that he's sending them out on here in Matthew chapter 10 uh, to the lost sheep of Israel. But then right away in the next verse, Jesus goes on to tell them, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And so as we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, and what we'll see at the end of the book, is that Jesus is sending his disciples out to all nations. The plan has always been for there to be this worldwide church that includes all of the Gentiles. And so in this verse, it becomes clear that Jesus is now talking about the whole mission that he's sending them out into, even after he dies and rises again and ascends back into heaven. But it's not just councils and kings and governors who will persecute Jesus's followers. Brother, will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. One commentator said, this is insane. 
This is not the way it's supposed to be. Because sin is insane. And Jesus wants us to know that even our own families will betray us to death because of him. Our siblings, our parents, our children. Because the message of the cross is so offensive to sinners that there's really only two responses to it. We can repent and believe the good news and rest in the promises of God in Christ, or we can reject it. And it's possible, as we all know in America, for Christians and non-Christians to live side by side with each other for a very long time. But eventually, that comes to an end. Now let me, let me just say practically speaking for us now how this might look. Because I think it's possible to sort of take this and think like, oh, well, one day things might get so bad that brother will rise up against brother, but good thing that's not happening now. But I just want to encourage us, right? If, if we have a family member who does not know the Lord, it requires great wisdom to share the gospel with that family member. If we have a family member who claims to know the Lord or has professed to know the Lord, but has fallen away from God, and is showing no evidence of salvation in their life, we have to ask ourselves, am I choosing not to tell this family member this important message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because I'm afraid that they'll reject me? Or am I just trying to be wise? Because it could be either one, and only us in our hearts know. But it's possible that we are fearing the potential rejection of that family member as we choose not to tell them the truth. But it's also possible for things to change. For people to have such different core values and goals society-wide that they can no longer live together anymore. It's possible to get to the point where our Christian values are so different that people think we are pure evil. Which is why Jesus warns us that if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. The idea here is that if Jesus, who is God, who never sinned and who lived a perfectly righteous life, can be called a devil, then you and I certainly can be called a devil's We'll be called devils because we won't worship the government as supreme. We'll be called devils because we cannot approve of immorality or injustice. We'll be called devils because we think it's important to convert other people from the false religions that they were born into. And so Jesus simply says, you will be hated by everyone. We will be thought of as ignorant, intolerant, judgmental people who are weak-minded and controlled by sinister leaders. Now, there are groups that are like that. And so we have to be convinced, right, that our job is to proclaim this message, to live holy lives full of the fruit of the Spirit. So if this persecution does come, we know that it's because of Jesus. So, 
how should we respond? Well, first, Jesus tells us to be on your guard. Now, this is my biggest concern for Christians in America, right? That, that we'll let down our guard. Because as we've said, we have been trained not to expect persecution. But Jesus tells us to be on guard, or another way to translate that would be pay attention. He wants us to know what's real. He wants us to know what could happen. And in fact, it will happen. It's happening now in certain places in our world. Because, as Jesus says later, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So not only is the gospel offensive to non-believers, but one of the reasons Jesus came is to make a distinction, to divide with a sword between those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. Now, some people hear this verse and think, wait a minute. <laughs> I, thought, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Don't, don't we sing at Christmas, you know, peace on earth, mercy mild? Yes. But the kind of peace Jesus brings is peace between God and sinners, right? That's why it says peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God also brings peace between believers. That's why Christians, right, whether they're Jew or Gentile, can have peace. Man or woman can have peace. Slave or free can have peace. But Jesus also came to bring a sword. There is not peace between Christians and non-Christians this side of eternity. He came actually to increase that conflict which is why we have to be on guard. Next, we respond by not worrying about what we will say. Jesus says, But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, Jesus is not saying here that we don't need to study God's Word. He's not promoting a charismatic spirituality where the Spirit is going to take over our bodies and just speak for us. One commentator says this. He says, this isn't a promise for those who fail to prepare. It's a promise for those who cannot prepare. So the analogy would be more like uh, a mechanic, right? You, you tell a mechanic who's about to drive a, a car, a broken down car across the country, and you tell him, don't worry, you'll know what to do. Because he's a mechanic. And Jesus is telling us, don't worry, you'll know what to say because you're my disciples. You're my followers. You, you study my word. You know me. You've, you've been with me. And notice, the goal is not our safety. The goal is not our avoiding being arrested. That's all just part of the plan. The thing Jesus cares about, the thing Jesus promises to protect, is not our physical safety, but our witness. The reality of the power of his kingdom spoken by his people, that's the thing he promises to protect. So don't worry, he will protect that. 
We're also to respond to persecution by standing firm and fleeing. Uh, Jesus says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So this could be taken as him saying two contradictory things. First, he tells them to stand firm, and then he tells them to flee when they're persecuted. So which is it, Jesus? Are we to stand firm? Are we to flee? And the answer is yes. Yes. We stand firm in the truth of the faith, once for all, handed down to the saints. We stand firm in our call to be witnesses of his kingdom, right? And the good news of salvation in Jesus. But remember, we're wise as serpents, which means we don't stick around to unnecessarily die when we don't have to. We never back down on our beliefs or our call to share the good news, but we are wise about when and where we share it. We should be willing to move on to the next town if that's what it takes to be more effective. And actually, this is a lot of the way Jesus uses persecution. Initially, after the church began, it just stayed there in Jerusalem. And it wasn't until the persecution came to the Christians in Jerusalem that sent them out into the world. And the next, Jesus says something odd. He says, I truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus tells them to go make disciples of all nations. But here, he tells them they won't even get out of Israel before he comes. Which means he can't possibly be talking about his judgment, his coming in judgment at the end of time. And since Matthew wrote both things 30 years later, he obviously didn't think there was any contradiction. And so the best explanation for this is that Jesus is talking about his coming into his kingdom after his death and resurrection. In Daniel 7, where Jesus takes the name Son of Man from, Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancients of Days and was led into his presence. So notice the Son of Man here is coming, but where he's coming to is into the presence of the Ancients of Days, which is God. Which means Jesus is telling his disciples to be prepared, to stand firm in their faith, to flee to other towns if necessary. And now he's telling them that they won't even finish their mission to Israel before he comes into the presence of God. Meaning, he's not going to be with them physically for the rest. Which is why the next way to respond, he tells them, is not to be afraid of those who are persecuting them. He says, so do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is telling us, don't be afraid of those who are persecuting you. And what you expect him to say is, because I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. That's not what he says. He says, don't be afraid of those who persecute you because everything that is hidden will be made known. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's something I'm actually supposed to be more afraid of. 
The moment when every thought and intention of all of our hearts is made known? That's why I'm not supposed to be afraid of persecutors now? Yes. See, Jesus is referring to the final judgment. He's telling them and us that the reason we shouldn't be afraid is because as Christians, we should know that we will be declared righteous at the final judgment. Even after all of our thoughts and intentions are laid bare for everyone to see, but those who are persecuting us, they will be exposed at that time for exactly who they are. So don't be afraid of them. Rather, take everything that I've told you in secret and go and shout it from the rooftops. All those people can do is kill you. So don't be afraid of them. Fear instead God. This reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Standing there before Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling them, you got to bow down to this statue that I made of myself. And they said, no. No. We know that God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. Is this our perspective? Do we care more about God's approval or the approval of other people? Do we look forward more to being accepted by our friends, our family, our society? Or do we look forward more to hearing God say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Jesus goes on. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care? And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So God is in control of all things. And you are worth so much to God that even if he allows you to fall dead like a sparrow on the ground, you can know that he cares for you and the reason you can know that is because he sent his only son to come and to die for you and to give you the hope of heaven. So finally, what is the purpose of all of this? What is all this persecution accomplishing? Why would Jesus allow these horrible things to happen to his own sheep? And the answer is, this is how he moves us to be witnesses to his kingdom. In verse 18, which we've already looked at, it says, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Right? We are his servants. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. This means the goal of our life is Christ and the end of our life is gain. So we must be willing to submit to however God chooses to use our one and only life to maximize our witness for his kingdom because nothing is more important than that message going out. And in many ways, bringing persecution into our lives is the most effective way to motivate us. As we said earlier, 
The goal is not our safety. The goal is not our avoiding being arrested. That's all part of the plan. The thing Jesus cares about, the thing Jesus promises to protect is our witness to the reality and the power of his kingdom. The other purpose for suffering is to test us. Remember, it's the one who stands firm to the end who will be saved. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And so when we're suffering and being persecuted, that's when we find out who our real God is. If comfort and security is our God, we will deny him. But if Jesus is our God, we will be a witness to what a good and gracious king he is. We will acknowledge that he has saved us from our sins because nothing is more precious than that. Just like the blind man in John 9, right? When the Pharisees bring him in and are questioning him, he says, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Each of us, each of us, Longs, I believe, to stand faithfully for God in a moment like that. I believe if the Spirit is alive inside us, there's something in us that both fears that moment and kind of wants to know what it would be like all at the same time. And just in case any of us thinks that we're not called to this kind of work, Jesus says this. He says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So we're either out as a worker in the field, bringing in the harvest, or we're called to receive and support those workers. Which means there's not a single one of us who is not supposed to be invested and actively involved in this work. Which means we're all vulnerable in some way to the persecution that might come. And we're also all in line to receive the wonderful reward. The person who prays and gives and hopes and longs on behalf of a missionary or a pastor or an elder or somebody who's more on the front lines with this work, the person doing that is every bit is involved. The term little ones here, Jesus applies to his disciples. His disciples are his little ones. In Matthew 18, Jesus will apply it to children. But his point in Matthew 18 is that his disciples are to change and become like little children because children trust those who are in authority over them. And for Jesus, all of his followers are little ones because we trust him. Now I want to close with uh, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life 
will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Worthy of Jesus. Do I do, I do all these things to become worthy of Jesus? No. This is the evidence. Jesus is helping us to be able to see the evidence in our lives that we have been made worthy. And we become worthy of Jesus, not by enduring persecution and standing firm in our own strength. We become worthy of Jesus, not by trying to prove that I love God more than I love my mother or father. No, someone who is worthy of Jesus is someone who receives the good news of the kingdom in faith and believes that Jesus is who he says he is. Someone who does that will come to know the love of God and the mercy of God so deeply that if forced to choose, they will choose obedience to God and the love of God in Christ ahead of even their own family. Thankfully, for most of us, we'll never have to make that choice. But if we do, I believe the Spirit is alive inside us. We would make that choice. But for those who believe the good news of the kingdom, we truly don't have to worry because we are worth so much to God. Right? We're worth so much to Him that He's watching over us, that He's caring over us. Right? He cares about the sparrows that are the most worthless bird you can think of. So we can know that he cares about you and me because we're worth that much to him simply because we have received the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We are worthy of him simply because of our faith and the fruit of that faith is our willingness to lose our life as we would choose it to find our life in him as he has chosen it for us. The fruit of that faith is our accepting life on his terms rather than demanding it on our own terms. He is our savior, but he's also the Lord. And he was the one who was arrested and brought before the Jewish council and flogged. He was the one who stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate, and witnessed to his kingdom that is not of this world. He is the one who was betrayed by his family. We're gonna read later in Matthew that his mom and his brothers and sisters are embarrassed of Jesus. He is the one who was betrayed by his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, and even Peter, his closest friend, denies him three times. The rest of the disciples, they all scatter and hide. And Jesus is called Beelzebub, a devil, and then crucified. Why? For blasphemy. At the Son of God, the most powerful and the, the most holy, good, wise king, is crucified for blasphemy. I mean, how upside down can you get? And because of that, like the disciples who left him and betrayed him and who loved the world more than they loved him in this moment, we know that we can be forgiven 
for all the ways that we choose the world over Christ, for all the ways that we fear man more than we fear God. Right? Peter was forgiven. You and I can be forgiven. But also, like the disciples, we can be transformed. Right? They are the ones who went out with boldness and took this message of the kingdom right, from Samaria, Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. And I believe, Emmanuel Church, I believe that every single one of us longs, longs to be actively, daily, passionately aware and involved in what God is doing to take his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And for most of us, that's going to be praying and supporting and caring, right? But then as we do that, as we pray that God would raise up workers for the harvest, guess what? I also pray that he'll raise up workers right out of this congregation. How wonderful would it be to support a missionary that came from Emmanuel Church, that grew up here? How wonderful would that be? How much more would we invest in that, right? So let's know that persecution is coming. Let's know it comes because of Jesus. And by his grace, let's be ready to respond by not worrying what we will say, by standing firm in our faith, fleeing if necessary, by fearing God more than we fear those who can kill us, that we might be witnesses for his kingdom who are found faithful in his strength and who can receive his reward he freely gives to those who trust him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for this hard passage with hard truths, but we're thankful that it makes us long, long to be a part of what you're doing in this world to save sinners from their sin. Show us, Father, what we can do. Show us how we can pray. Show us how we can repent. Show us how we can trust you and then help us to look to Christ and Christ alone in faith for not only our forgiveness, but for the strength and the power to live as you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.